Last Sunday we crossed over into chapter 6 and looked at the first portion of Paul's response to the Corinthians' way of settling disputes in the church. Their way of settling disputes was by filing lawsuits and dragging their brothers and sisters through the pagan or secular court system. And Paul's response to, to that unrighteous way uh, is threefold. We looked at the first two points last Sunday. First, Paul describes the absurdity of believers taking each other to court, chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Uh, why would they lay their cases before unbelievers who have no standing in the church when Scripture is fully sufficient on all matters, when the Corinthians, along with all believers, will one day judge the world and angels? Uh, and, and then Paul adds in, in that uh, teaching and that rebuke that doing that kind of thing, suing your brothers and sisters, is just not only shameful, but it's spiritually defeating. And so that was kind of the first thing we looked at. Then secondly, Paul challenges the Corinthians and really all believers to appoint an internal or in-church arbiter who can settle their disputes. We looked at that at chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. That way, if you have somebody in the church that can help settle disputes, that way brothers don't have to go to law against brothers and before unbelievers and therefore disgrace themselves, disgrace the church, and worst of all, disgrace the head of the church, Christ. So that's the stuff that we focused on last Sunday. This morning we're going to look at the second portion of this, Paul's dealing with this particular subject, and we'll look at that third and final point. Uh, it's a little different from the previous section uh, because Paul takes his argument or his correction in kind of another direction. His concern at this juncture is that the Corinthians had somehow forgotten what it means and looks like to actually live as a Christian. So Paul wants to deal with the disputes and the sexual immorality, all the things that he's been dealing with, but right now it's like he has this moment where he becomes highly concerned about these Christians in general. Are they actual Christians? Why are they living in a way that is totally contradictory to being a Christian? And so his highest concern here is that uh, they're acting like they don't know how to live as Christians or they've somehow forgotten how to live as Christians. And so he just takes a moment to, to kind of deal with that within the grand scheme of all of it. And I think that we tend to do this from time to time. If we're going to be transparent and honest, there are times where we seem to gap out. And maybe sometimes it's a very short period of time we do that, like throughout a day where we kind of, you know, um, digress or revert back to the old man or the old lady or the old self and then act in the flesh. And then now we're acting like we don't know what it means to be a Christian. So now with the Corinthians, this is happening on a very grand scale because they've got some pretty big, serious sin issues in the church. But I think sometimes with us, we do the same thing, maybe on a smaller scale, maybe on a big scale like them. But I don't think that it's impossible or difficult for us to have these sorts of these lapses and maybe just kind of regress or digress and go back to the old way. And, and that's really, I think, what Paul is dealing with here. And, and Paul, 
obviously is full of the Holy Spirit, being guided by the Holy, Holy Spirit, and presents to the Corinthians, I think, <clears throat> one of the best ways to bring a believer back. If a believer is gapping out and kind of forgetting what they're to be doing, regardless of how long that gap is, if it's for a few hours or a day or months, heaven forbid, he develops, or at least through the through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lays out, I think, the best way maybe to bring believers back to a proper Christian lifestyle. And that is to remind them of who they were in their past life and to remind them of who they are in Christ now. This is a great way to counter this. In fact, this is something that the Holy Spirit does for us. If, if we're actual Christians and we're possessed by the Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit is going to convict us at times where we're acting like boneheads and he's going to remind us of what we were and remind us of what we are and then challenge, exhort, encourage in that sweet, still voice of God and say, you are not acting like you should be acting. You're acting like the old self. So, but Paul does this for them and I think it's really, it was probably very helpful for them. I know it's certainly been helpful for me in the past when I do this. And so this is what he does. He reminds them of, of their past life and their present life in Christ. And uh, it's what he does in this next section. And that's what we're going to look at. I, I'd like for you guys, if you could, if you're not already there, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 6, verses 9 to 11 is what we'll be focusing on here. And I think it's befitting that we pray once more before we get to work. Lord, we humble ourselves now and present ourselves to you submitting ourselves to your word and your authority. Lord, if we are indeed your people, Lord, we pray that you remind us of who we are and of what we are. And I don't think it's a good thing, and I think the scripture kind of speaks to this. It's not a good idea to dwell on the past or to focus on all those past sins and behaviors. That's not a good thing to do. But if we could just maybe today take a glance, I mean, if we're, if we're struggling, and we're not living out this calling. If we could just glance at what we were and then focus, put a high focus on who we are now, that, that's going to be very helpful. That's going to glorify you, and that's going to help us and edify us. And so we just pray that if we're in Christ, that's what you do for us this morning. If we're not in Christ, that we can't even do any of these things. All we have is the old self. And we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would make us new today, that we would submit to you and repent of our unbelief and put our trust in Christ and become new people with new lives, leaving the old behind, dying to self and pursuing righteousness and holiness and the things that, that you call us to and empower us to do. So be glorified during this message. We pray in Christ's beautiful name. Amen. Uh, so let's look at that third and final point right now. As we did have three all together. I've got the two up there on the board still, and then the third one's highlighted in red. You can see that there. This is the third point. This was supposed to be one sermon, but my sermons are already very long, and if I'd attempted to do this too last week, I probably would be back at Home Depot, <laughs> and that was dreadful, by the way. Uh, so number three, this is Paul's third point, an admonition describing who the Corinthians were and are. And that is the rest of our text here. It's verses 9 to 11, but I'd like to pick up in verse 9a. Listen to what Paul says next. And this is about as clear as you can get. 
And I would say real quickly, I'd like to preface this with the idea that what Paul does here is something that others in Scripture have done, especially John. John did this in his epistles, you know, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, especially 1 John, where you talk about what it looks like to be a Christian and what it looks like not to be a Christian. That is essentially what Paul is doing. John's way of doing it was by using, I would say, love as an example. If you have love in your heart for the brethren and for God, obviously you've been born of God. If not, there's problem. Paul is not going to come at it from the same way that John does. Not that he wasn't gentle, but this is a shotgun blast. Listen to what he says here. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What Paul has been doing is he's been talking about unrighteous behavior because that's what divisions in the church are. That's what sexual immorality in the church, or at least turning a blind eye to it when it's happening. That's what uh, settling your disputes in court. It, these, that, these are all unrighteous behaviors. These are things that the unrighteous, those who do not know Christ, do. And so it makes total and absolute sense for Paul to say something like this here, even though it's hardcore. The first thing he really does here is just present a clear warning about how the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Who are the unrighteous? Well, they are those who are still in their sins, right? They're the unconverted, those who haven't repented of their unbelief, turned from sin, turned to God. They are those who do not believe in Christ. They are those who reject Jesus Christ. Therefore, they're still in their sins. If a person is still in their sin and under the judgment of God and under the penalty of God, they're unrighteous. And so that's who they are. And we need to get some proper definitions here. So that's the unrighteous. They're outside of Christ, haven't repented, haven't trusted in Christ, still in their sin, unrighteous. Not clothed in the righteousness of Christ or anything like that at all. They're clothed in death and sin. What is the kingdom of God? I tell you, there probably isn't within this text or probably in the Bible a more debated subject on what that is. Everybody's talking about it. In fact, all the eschatological positions are all talking about what that is or what it'll be or if it's to come or if it's here. And it is such a debated subject. And I, I think it's a lot easier than that. I don't know why we're debating this. It's pretty plain. Firstly, you need to know that it's synonymous or the same thing as the kingdom of heaven. Like you see, especially in the New Testament, Authors, divinely inspired authors talking about the kingdom of God and you see Jesus in particular talk about the kingdom of heaven. Same thing. They're not two different places or two different things or two different dispensations or two different ages. It's the same thing. And I've heard people try to say the kingdom of God is this and then the kingdom of heaven is this and then the millennial kingdom is this and the new heavens and earth is this. Well, just so you understand, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, same thing. There's, no, there's nothing that distinguishes them from each other. They're the same thing. So firstly, you need to understand that. I would just simply say that these two biblical titles or phrases represent one particular place. Broadly speaking, like in a broader sense, the kingdom of God is the rule of the eternal sovereign God over the entire universe or over all of creation. So the kingdom of God is everything that he has created in a sense, in the broader sense. 
right? If God is ruling over his creation, all things, not just over the church or just over believers, but over all things, because we understand scripture teaches that very clearly, then in a way, the kingdom of God, the place of his rule is all things. So in the broader sense, that title means that. There are several I wouldn't even say several. There's a multitude. We wouldn't have time to go through all of them, but there's a multitude of passages that speak about God being the undeniable monarch, monarch over all creation. Uh, one such passage, uh, the Lord has established his throne in heaven. So you see, that's where his throne is. And his, uh, his kingdom, it rules over all. So his throne is in heaven, but he rules over all things. That's Psalm 103.19. We also know that God has established every authority on earth and in the invisible realm, principalities. Romans 13, 1. So if he has established his authority over the invisible realm and over the entire realm, over all nations, over all creation, clearly then the place or scope of God's rule is, is overall, which means all is the kingdom of God in the broadest sense. But I don't think that's typically the way that we think of it. He has established every authority, therefore the kingdom of God incorporates everything that is. Romans 13.1 speaks to that. Now I would say more narrowly, right, instead of being this broad scope, more narrowly the kingdom of God is absolutely without a doubt the spiritual realm over which God reigns as king. The sphere of salvation is the way that theologians present that over all who are saved. Jesus spoke to this quite a bit, and I'm thinking of one instance in John 18, 36, where he described his kingdom not of this world. Now, if you think about that in a way, that's contradictory to the kingdom of Christ and God being all things. And he says very plainly, my kingdom is not of this world. He says this to Pontius Pilate. He's not contradicting scripture or the fact that God's rule is over all and the kingdom of God is all, but he's saying specifically that it is something else too. He's speaking to the narrow view, which is still scriptural, the sphere, the sphere of salvation. A kingdom is not of this world. And some people say, obviously, he was referring to heaven. I don't think so. I don't think that he was referring to heaven because he said also the kingdom is at hand. What he says, what he means when he says, my kingdom is not of this world, and yet it is at hand. He is saying that it is not of this world. It's not of the substance of this world. But it's here because where he is, the kingdom of God is. Right? Wherever Christ is, the kingdom of God is manifest. It's right there with him is what he meant. It's not of this world, but it's close. It's here. He says this in Mark 1.15a. That's one of my favorite texts, by the way. He says, repent, believe the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is speaking of the kingdom of God. So in a narrow sense, it is not all of creation. It is not of this world, and yet it is present. I, I don't know about you, but at this point, as I was studying, I'm confused. Hmm. 
In that same line, as I just pointed to, Jesus declares that repentance and belief in the gospel are required for entry into this particular kingdom that he says is not of this world, but is equally here. That's in the second half of Mark 1.15. That's 1.15b. And then he also says in John 3, 5 to 7, he tells Nicodemus, we call this Nick at night, <laughs> that one must be born again to enter this kingdom that he's speaking of. Obviously, if it's a kingdom that is not of this world, but it's equally here and there are requisites to entering it. It cannot be the creation itself because everything is already in creation. You don't have to be born again to be in the broader sense or uh, in, the, in the broader sense of the meaning in the kingdom of God if God's rule is over all. But what Jesus is saying is now this, what I'm presenting to you, you have to be born again. Repentance and belief in the gospel are requisite, required. You're not in this kingdom unless these things have transpired. So since repentance, faith, and being born again are spiritual acts that bring access and entry into the kingdom of God, that has to mean that the kingdom of God is primarily spiritual. If it takes spiritual conversion and the, the divine acts of God to bring one in, then it has to be a spiritual kingdom. You have to be made spiritually alive to enter this kingdom. So when we think of it like that, it can't be all of creation because there's plenty of spiritually dead people in the broader meaning of kingdom of God if it's all things, and that would be creation. Does that make sense to you? No. <laughs> the fact that you can't get in without spiritual transformation tells us that it is a spiritual realm. That would be the narrow meaning. Those who refuse to repent and trust in Christ are not in the kingdom of God in the narrow sense. They are outsiders. They do exist within a kingdom, but it's called the kingdom of darkness. And they're under the king of that kingdom of darkness, and that is Satan, because he is the god of this world, meaning the god of this dark kingdom. Acts 26, 18, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. So, they exist in a kingdom, but it's not the kingdom of God. It's not the kingdom of heaven. It's not the kingdom that scripture presents. It is an alternative kingdom, the kingdom of darkness with a king and even a God, lower G, not really divine, but in the sense scripture presents him that way. He is the God of this world, Satan, the devil. So we, so, so the kingdom of God is both all things and then narrower than that. It's a spiritual kingdom that requires certain spiritual things to become part of. And now we have to ask this question, why won't the righteous inherit this kingdom of God then? Because that's exactly what Paul says. Why is Paul saying that? Because these, these quote-unquote Christians are acting unrighteously, right? The church is filled with carnality, dividing over your favorite preacher. That's unrighteous, Engaging or approving of or turning a blind eye to sexual immorality, that's unrighteous. Settling your disputes in a combative way or in court, that is unrighteous. Paul is concerned about these people because they are acting in such a way that they have more in common with the unrighteous than the righteous. And of course he says, you do understand that those who are unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, a.k.a. the kingdom of heaven. This is what he's saying. This is his concern. 
Why won't they enter it? Because they're spiritually dead. Because they are unrighteous. Only righteous people can dwell in it or inherit it. Put it this way, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, synonymous term, right? It is for the righteous only. So now we know that it has to be a spiritual kingdom at this point. It can't be the whole thing because you have unrighteous people dwelling in the whole thing. Put it this way, without righteousness, there is no entry into or inheritance of the kingdom of God. Jesus makes this absolutely clear in Matthew 5.20 where he says, Your righteousness must exceed that of the most religious people in the world, the Pharisees, in order to enter this kingdom. The Pharisees would never enter it because they had their own righteousness. He's saying you've got to have a righteousness that goes well beyond what they were trying to conjure up through all their good deeds. In fact, the, taking it further, the kingdom of God is characterized by three things in particular. According to Romans 14, 16 to 19, it is characterized by three things. Righteousness, righteousness, peace, and joy. Okay, that, now that has to narrow it down again to a spiritual realm and kingdom because the whole sense of God's kingdom, the whole creation is not characterized by those things. It's characterized by sin and unrighteousness and war and divisions and some of the things that were in this church, sadly. I think this truth, these truths that I'm kind of unpacking for you, trying to flesh out what the kingdom of God is, the fact that it's characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy, this particular truth in combination with the others demonstrates how the kingdom of God cannot be equated with this present evil age, nor can it be equated with the millennial kingdom. It cannot, because this current evil age and the millennial kingdom are inhabited by unrighteous people in that theory. So it, it can't be, it can't be now in the broadest sense because we have a world that's filled with unrighteousness and doesn't have peace and doesn't have joy. And then according to some dispies, I think most of them, dispensationalists, the millennial kingdom when Christ comes and raptures the church and does all that stuff that kingdom still has unbelievers in it and, 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 and just because Christ is there during that thousand year reign so to speak I don't see how he's going to be able to rein in unbelievers unbelievers have to be transformed and made new to be able to exhibit righteousness to be able to exhibit the true peace of God, and that, that, that's peace between them and God. And then, of course, real joy, which is not based on anything temporal, but upon the reality of your own conversion, the reality of your own future, the reality of your inheritance in the kingdom of God. So I think that what I'm telling you is that the kingdom of God can be in the broader sense all things, but it, it also can't be. Thank you, Lord. And this is one of those mysterious things that has to do with God's wisdom that supersedes ours exponentially. It is all things, but it is also very narrow in a spiritual kingdom and realm where only the righteous dwell and exist. So the, the unrighteous cannot be in it because they're spiritually dead, because they're unrighteous. Only righteous people are in it. And this truth combined with the others, demonstrates that it really cannot be equated with the present evil age nor the millennial kingdom because they're inhabited by spiritually dead, unrighteous sinners. Okay, that doesn't mean that, those, that the millennial kingdom is a reality. 
I find it hard to be a reality, and I don't want to challenge you too hard if you're still in that view. I understand it. I was in it forever, but I find it hard to believe that there's going to be a temple that's making sacrifices to the one who'd sacrificed his life once and for all, and then it's comprised of unrighteous people who make a mess of everything. So I don't, just don't quite understand how we have the perfection of that time and era or that dispensation with things really unchanged in the world. This is a truth that I've had to wrestle with mightily. I haven't just come to terms with it and just jettisoned my old eschatology completely. I'm just wrestling. This must be a spiritual kingdom because the only plausible explanation for how it can be both present and like literally now, as Jesus said, and inhabited only by righteous people. That's the only plausible explanation is that it has to be, if it's here and only the righteous are in it, then it's something that I cannot see, but it's here. In fact, it's something that I and you, if you were a believer, are an inheritor of, an inhabitant of, inhabitant of, but you can't see it. Pretty interesting, isn't it? And I would say this, the kingdom of God, what we've been talking about, and I would say the narrower scope, the spiritual kingdom, will be made completely physical at the consummation when Christ returns. That is when you will, without a doubt, know you're in it and see it. Because what's going to happen when Christ returns? Now, we all know that when Christ returns, whether it's the first return in the dispensational view or, well, that would be probably the second return of Christ in the dispensational view of the first and the other views. We know he's coming back. All of us will agree to that. It just has to do with where we put specific events. But in the view that I've been examining and looking at, what happens is when Christ returns, that is when he judges the unrighteous and the righteous and cast away the unrighteous in the lake of fire along with the devil and the demons and all and every antichrist, pope, papacy, you name it. And then that is when he and his people will rule over the nations with a rod of iron. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that he has to rule over a bunch of pagans like in the millennial scheme. It means that he will judge it all. It means that we make these judgments with him because we're co-reigners and rulers and co-regents. So I think that's the way that it goes, and I think Scripture supports that, although I think that Scripture still speaks in a way that could, you could say, well, I think it may be, it, yes, I believe that, but I think it happens a little differently in the chronology. So you have the unrighteous being judged, cast in the lake of fire along with the devil, the demons, every antichrist. This is at the return of Christ. I say the first pass, not the second. And then you have the righteous reigning and ruling with Christ forever and ever in the kingdom of God, Revelation 20, 10 to 15, 2 Tim 2, 12, or as Revelation 21, 1 puts it, the new heavens and the new earth. And there's great conversation about what that will be like. Some think that the world will be completely destroyed and remade, and then some think that it'll enter through a very serious remodel. You know there's nothing wrong with creation. I'm not sure exactly why it would need to be destroyed when it testifies to God's invisible attributes and is absolutely gorgeous. And creation itself 
is yearning for Christ to return to set things right. So I'm not exactly sure why it would need to be blown up like the Death Star. I think that what it does is it gets a really, really strong facelift. And one way that you give it a facelift is by removing the unrighteous because they are the reason, we are the reason essentially, not anymore because we're believers, but they are the reason why it's all jacked up. So I don't know, there's great debate about that, but I think that's probably gonna how, how it's going to play out. Now we need to ask the question, who are the righteous? They are those who have worked really hard and, and followed religion and done all the good deeds and they gave their time, town, and treasure consistently and they made it a real point to serve in the nursery. And <laughs> like they were asked and, and they, didn't, they didn't grimace, oh, the nursery. They said, the nursery, praise the Lord. That's a righteous person. I'm kidding. Their righteousness doesn't have anything to do with what they've done. It has everything to do with what Christ did. They have been made righteous by Christ, who is the only righteous one. When they trusted in him, when they put their faith in Christ, when they turned from the unbelief and believed in Jesus Christ, Christ gives them his perfect righteousness and the penalty and punishment for their sin goes to him. We call it the great exchange. It's one of the greatest things to ever happen. It is the greatest thing to ever happen. <coughs> one of the things and reasons why we celebrate Christmas, because that's exactly what that little baby came to do. They are those who are covered by the perfect righteousness of Christ. We say clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This divine righteousness, or as Luther would put it, alien righteousness, is appropriated to believers through faith, not through deeds. When a sinner repents and trusts in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them. The penalty for their sins is imputed to Christ. It's the great exchange. It's amazing. An authentic, real, true Christian, and I think it's dumb that you have to distinguish a true one with a false one these days because there's a lot of people that profess Christ and think they're Christians that aren't. But we actually have to say now, we can't just say Christian anymore. Now we have to say a true one or an authentic one. I would say a real Christian actually has two types of righteousness. Two types. They have positional righteousness and they have patterned righteousness. This is so important that we understand this. Because most of the time, all that's ever presented is positional righteousness. And if we don't talk about pattern righteousness, we're in big trouble here. Because you can't have one without the other. So we have two types, positional and patterned. Christians are positionally righteous because they are trusting in Christ and as Lord and Savior. And positional righteousness, by the way, is permanent. Once a person is made righteous by Christ, he's justified, he or she is justified by God. It's permanent. There's no changing that. Patterned righteousness, on the other hand, I could define it like this. It is desiring to do what is right according to Scripture. So there is a desire there to do righteousness. It is equally doing what is right according to Scripture. Not just desiring it, but actually doing it. And then thirdly, I would say it, is, it has to do with repenting when the Christian fails to do righteousness. That is what pattern righteousness is. It is the desire to do righteousness, it is doing righteousness, and it is realizing when you don't do righteousness, I need to do righteousness. I need to repent. 
I haven't been living righteously lately. I have been using my tongue in a way that I shouldn't. I have been using my body in a way that I shouldn't. I have been getting mad at other drivers and saying things I ought not do, giving them hand signals. <laughs> really, if you wanted to boil it down, it has to do with being righteous. What a concept. Walking in righteousness. Living out righteousness in very, very practical ways. We must understand that, if, and this is why this is so important to mention, if a person has been made positionally righteous, patterned righteousness will follow. It is impossible to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and to not live a righteous life. Let's put it that way. One follows the other. You cannot be positionally righteous and not patterned. If you think you're positionally righteous and don't have the pattern, you're not positionally righteous. It is impossible to be positional and not patterned like it is impossible to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That is to be made spiritually alive to God, to be given a new heart, a new mind, new desires for God. It is impossible to be regenerated and yet still unrepentant and unbelieving. If a person is regenerated by the Spirit, they will repent, they will believe. And some say, well, I've read Pilgrim's Progress. It could take years to get there. I say, no, it happens like that. You're made new you start having new faith, a new repentance. And I would say it's as, just as impossible to be made positional and patterned. You have to have both. It's, it's impossible to be one without the other, just as it is impossible to be literally born again and then to be nothing like God. To be born again means in John 3, some English renderings say it this way, is to be born again, is to be born of God. In the likeness of God, not in divinity, but in righteousness and in holiness, in those things. I read recently, I thought it was really brilliant, that talks about how, you know, we are image bearers and that the image outside of Christ, the image that we bear is of a fallen Adam. But when we believe, when we repent and believe in Christ, we bear the image of Christ, we are image bearers, but better than our previous image bearing. We don't bear the image of our federal head, Adam, who fell into sin, who willfully sinned. We bear the image of Christ. And if Christ is righteous, what will we be? Righteous. Put it this way, if we have been made righteous by Christ, our lives will be patterned by righteousness. More simply put, we will live righteous lives. Scripture, especially in the New Testament, affirms this in so many places. Forget about it. The righteous shall live by faith. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, Hebrews 10.38. These three passages say the exact same thing. What does that mean? It means that the righteous keep trusting in Christ and they exhibit pattern righteousness in their lives. That's what it means. The unrighteous, however, live by the flesh, Romans 6, 13. They continue in unbelief, and they continue to exhibit patterned unrighteousness in their lives. They do the opposite. 
People can profess Christ until they are blue in the face, but if their lives are no different from before and they are still patterned by unrighteousness, it is clear that they are unregenerate. It is clear that they do not possess the divine gift of true faith. It is true that they have not been made righteous by Christ. And they should not assume to have the kingdom of God as their dwelling place or inheritance. Why? Because as Paul says here, it belongs to the righteous, not the unrighteous. In fact, I'll say this, there is not a single unrighteous person in the kingdom of God when we speak of it in the narrow sense. There's not one unrighteous person in it. And there never will be. Why? Because it is for the righteous, those who are in Christ. Well, that's good news and bad news if you're not in it. But the good news is the gospel can bring you into it. You have to ask now, why is Paul bringing this up? What is he doing? Because I already stated, some of the Corinthians had more in common with the unrighteous than with the righteous. They were dividing, committing, uh, committing and even permitting sexual immorality. They were settling their disputes through lawsuits in secular courts. These are unrighteous deeds, unrighteous acts. They are the things that worldly, carnal, unbelieving, unrighteous people do. If you see these things manifested in a church, you have to challenge with this text. Believers have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's son, Colossians 1.13. Therefore, the actions of believers should be worthy of those who belong to this kingdom, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. Mark Taylor wrote, by engaging in litigation, they themselves are acting unrighteously, just like those who will not inherit the kingdom. Their behavior is no different from the world. That, my friends, is Paul's concern here. Verse 9a, when he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? That is intended to be a wake-up call to those who have forgotten what it means to live as a Christian, or maybe we're never even trained, or just don't. They're just unrighteous, period. They're not even an immature believer who's forgotten his way or what have you. They're just outside of the fold. That's the point. And he gets more specific in the next two lines, 9b and 10. Listen to what he says here. And now he gets, I mean, it's just like, okay, when we're talking about the unrighteous not inherit the kingdom. Let me give you examples of the unrighteous. He says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Oh, boy, that's a portion of this church, the Corinthian church. Neither the sexually immoral nor, nor idolaters. That, my friends, is in a way a section of this church. Here, I see. Nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. This is actually the second vice list in this epistle, Paul likes to write out these vice lists in some of his epistles. We see the first one here in 1 Corinthians 5.11 where he told the Corinthians not to associate or even eat with any brother who professes to be a brother who is simultaneously guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, revelry, drunkenness, or swindling. Notice what Paul does at the beginning of 9b. He warns against deception. Do 
not be deceived. See, those who think that unrighteous behaviors such as sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, thievery, greed, drunkenness, revelry, and swindling, those who think that those unrighteous behaviors that are patterned, that those things are somehow compatible with the kingdom of God, Paul says they are deceived. And we know who the deceiver is, don't we? In other words, a life that is patterned after such unrighteousness is excluded from the kingdom of God. That is the strong language here. And notice how he does mention in this list, he even, now he does say sexual immorality, right? But then he gives some explicit examples of sexual immorality, adultery. And then he says homosexuality, which is one that we pastors and Christians tend to focus on quite a bit. Maybe that's because it's being shoved in our faces all day. And I would just say this, according to this text, there is no such thing as a gay Christian. Doesn't exist. Just as there's no such thing as a thieving Christian or a swindling Christian or a drunk Christian. Christian. I lost my, I lost, I'm turning into a duck. See, be, being gay, homosexual, and Christian, that's incompatible. I'm not trying to pick on homosexual. I'm just trying to say, state the obvious from the text because there's a great many people today, even in the church, that are very, very confused about this. Those who profess Christ but continue to live in patterned unrighteousness, explicitly homosexuality, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is exactly what Paul says. They are homosexuals, not Christians. If they have an identity, it is tied to their sexuality, and it happens to be homosexuality, and that's who they are. That's what they are. And this is the contextual, historical, and current meaning of this text. It has never changed, and it never will, because men are like grass and fade away, but the Word of God stands forever. The new perspective on Paul and his writings is nothing more than a feeble attempt to make Scripture sin-friendly. And I would say, because we do not want to pick on homosexuals, because I want to see them saved. The same is true of those who engage in, regularly engage in other forms of sexual immorality, like fornication. And that has to do with sleeping with somebody outside of wedlock, or pornography, which is more pervasive today than ever before because it's on everyone's phone. Paul is saying that those who engage, regularly engage, this is the pattern, sexual immorality, whether it be fornication or homosexuality or pornography or adultery or these things, he says very clearly, if that's what you are and what you do all the time, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. A person who worships idols. Well, we don't have to worry about that because I don't have any little stone figures in my house. You have a mirror, don't you? And you look in it and always go, wow. <laughs> I look at it and go, wow. <laughs> look at me. Lord, what have you done to me? It's your fault you got the vaccine and you got backed up three times with it. That's why you, I'm just kidding. Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, and some of you are going, I did that, shut up. 
a person who worships idols, our idolatry, I think, today looks a little different than it did in Jesus' day, although I think at the end of the day, people were worshiping themselves in Jesus' day, and all the statuary and everything they made were representations of themselves, and they called those gods. But ours looks a little different today. Those who worship idols, self is the biggest idol, and then probably husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or children or grandchildren or money or possessions or work because some people pour every ounce of everything into their work. The older I get, the less I want to work. Into their stock portfolios, into their leisure, and even into false deities because there's no shortage of those today. Paul says those who worship all those types of idols, any type of idol, where they give their allegiance and affection to something other than God, Paul says clearly, they will not inherit the kingdom. A married person who sleeps with others that are not his or her, you know, his wife, her husband, those who sleep with others other than their wife, that's an adulterer. And Paul says very clearly, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Regular pattern. Not once and he made a mistake years ago. That's if you've repented and you're trusting in Christ. But then Jesus amplified this by saying, if you look at anyone with lust, you've done it. That's, ah. Paul says clearly they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are adulterers, those who steal rather than work, I say, thieves, robbers, looters, no kingdom of God for you. It's what he says. I didn't write this. A person who is greedy, you know, they just hoard unto themselves. They're not generous and they're just stockpiling, whether it be wealth or whatever it is. It could be anything. It could even be with food or whatever. I don't know. Just someone who's greedy, even in a general sense. Paul says they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Really what Paul is doing here is he's drawing a distinction between how the righteous live and the unrighteous live. So really, at the end of the day, it's the unrighteous that don't inherit the kingdom, and they are the ones that do all these things regularly. That's his point. But he's not done. A person who drinks a lot excessively and gets drunk, and I would say, added to that, or gets high, because that's gotten lost in translation. Now, it wasn't a big problem in the first century. That's why marijuana and these things aren't mentioned there. But a person who takes a substance to alter the way they feel, to escape from reality or just to even feel good. Someone who does this as a regular pattern, especially with the booze, because that was a huge problem in the first century, Paul says clearly they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who revel, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is a reveler? They are those who destroy with their tongues. They wound with words. God does not consider their sin to be mild because it comes from hearts that are full of just hatred and diseased hatred. And they cause misery and pain and despair in those whom they attack. That's a reveler. No kingdom of God. Those who swindle will not inherit the kingdom of God. Good Lord, there's never been a more swindling group or time or epoch or era than today, especially in America. First thing that comes to mind is all those health and wealth swindlers flying around in their jets now. You might as well enjoy it because that jet's going to go right into hell. Swindlers are thieves who steal indirectly. 
They take unfair advantage of others to promote their own financial gain. Extortioners, embezzlers, promoters of defective merchandise and defective services, false advertisers, all of those types of swindlers were actually common in Paul's day, just as they are today. Paul gives us a list, but his point is really simple. Anyone who thinks they will inherit the kingdom of God while living a life that is patterned after unrighteousness, these things, and there's, I'm sure there's a thousand more, anyone who lives that way and thinks they have the kingdom, he or she is deceived. And if we slide back to 9a, they will not inherit the kingdom. That's the point. That's heavy, man. That's heavy. That's everybody. Now we're going to look at two more things in the last line. Verse 11, and I, I just absolutely love this because this has been heavy and kind of depressing and kind of scary, and it should be. The one thing the Bible does not want us to be is deceived, to think we're something when we're not. That's why it exposes these things. It's for our good Two things we'll see here. He says this, and such were some of you. Wow. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That verse makes me want to weep. So, as I said, there's two things that we see here. First is the reminder, right? That's really the point of the text is to remind them of what they were. Remind them of who they are. Immediately after writing his second vice list in the previous verses, Paul is now saying this. Here is a paraphrase. Gets done saying the list of the homosexuals and all these things. He says, this is who you were before God, before you knew Christ. That's who you were. You were sexually immoral. You were idolaters. You were adulterers. You were homosexuals. You were thieves. You were greedy. You were drunkards. You were revilers. You were swindlers. But guess what? That's not who you are anymore. That's who you were. You're something different now is what he's saying. Your sins, he says, were washed. And that means washed away by the blood of Christ. You are sanctified. What does that mean? It means that you are set apart for God, for holy use. You are justified. That means declared righteous because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You are, you have been made righteous by Christ. Therefore, you are justified through Christ and through faith. And he wraps it up with this statement of all of this has been done to you and for you and in you, all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to, I know this, is, this is good news. I want you to notice how all these, because these are divine acts being washed and, and being justified. I want you to notice how they're all past tense. You were washed. You're not being washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Past tense. These things were completed for these Corinthians by God when they first believed. Before this letter was ever written. Before the first warning letter went out that we don't even have access to. Paul just mentions it in the previous chapter. 
before any of this was penned and written and sent out, these people were washed and were sanctified and were justified. Done, done, and done. Oh, man. Paul is, what is he doing here? He is reminding the Corinthians of their position and pattern. Those who were washed, sanctified, and justified are, as we have talked about, positionally righteous and should have the pattern of righteousness. That's what he's saying. He's saying you were unrighteous, but God made you righteous through Christ and the Spirit. Now walk in this righteousness. That's what he's saying. You can do it current tense because of what's been done for you in the past washed sanctified justified by Christ through the spirit that's what he's saying man so that's the first thing right it's a reminder that's what you were this is what you are you were doing this but now do this and you can because God did these things for you remember what we do always comes as a response to what God does first never get it backwards I believe, not because faith was in me, but because he gave it to me. Paul never gets these things backwards. He always presents the finished work of Christ and then gives the imperatives or the commands. This was done for you. Now you do this under Christ. You can. So that's the first thing. It's a reminder the second thing we see here, and this is the good stuff. The second thing we see here, oh, help me get through it, Lord, is a clear demonstration of God's omnipotent power. That's what you see here. Because he alone can take a sexually immoral man, an idolater, an adulterer, a homosexual, a thief, a greedy, um, avaricious Scrooge, a, a drunkard, a reviler, or a swindler. He alone can wash them clean with the blood of Christ and sanctify and set them apart. He alone can justify them in Christ through the Holy Spirit. This is not just a reminder, it is a declaration of what God alone can do for homosexuals, for sexual sinners, for robbers, for murderers, for persecutors of the church. Think of Paul, for derelicts who engaged in every kind of frivolity, me. This isn't just a reminder, it is a demonstration of the all-inspiring, all-power of God. Oh, my goodness. In doing so, in, in, the, in the washing and, and in the sanctifying and, 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 and in the justifying, the things that only God can do for us that we cannot do for ourselves, no matter how hard we work at it, only he can do it. But in and through those things, it is in, in and through those things that, that he makes the unrighteous righteous and delivers them from the domain of darkness and transfers them to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's Colossians 1.13 again. That, my friends, is power. That's real power. 
I think it's an incredible display of God's omnipotent power to bring all things into existence by speaking. Wow. But to me, the greater feat of God is to take a spiritually dead corpse and make them alive and make them believe through the gift of faith and make them repent, repent through the gift of repentance. First Timothy to give them new desires for righteousness because their old desires were unrighteousness. That, my friends, is the most ultimate display of God's power. And you won't think it is as long as you think that you're not that bad. It's only until you begin to realize who you were and what you are now in Christ that you could even agree with what I'm saying. If you don't see yourself as that bad, you'll undermine and downplay the power of God in regeneration. It is the greatest thing he does to make a dead person alive, demonstrated through the raising of Lazarus, countless examples. Those are not just physical examples of God's power. They are spiritual examples of God's power. He alone changes the leper's spots. We just sang it. And I used to think that was a leopard, like from the Serengeti. What a dummy. It is a leper. <laughs> Someone who is spiritually diseased. We see Jesus healing the lepers all the time. Great physical feat of his power, but the spiritual, the spiritual example there is even greater, that he can take the necrotic dead and make them alive. That's real power. And that, my friends, is good news. That, my friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we have, by God's grace and by God's power, repented and are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, we have been washed by his blood. We have been sanctified and set apart. We have been justified. We have been made righteous. And we should live righteous lives and the way to do that is to take up arms and do battle with your flesh and the devil and the world because they will assail you all day, every day, attacking you to live in unrighteousness and to tap into that old spiritually dead man, put him to death, put her to death, kill her, kill him, murder your old self. It's okay. And you can only do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. If we have been made righteous then we should live righteous lives. We will live righteous lives. If we have not repented and put our trust in Christ alone, we are defiled. We are dirty. We are unsanctified. We are unjustified. We are unrighteous. We are outside the kingdom of God, and we will perish with this age just know that the power of God can wash, can sanctify, can justify you. No matter how wicked, evil, perverted, whatever it is that you have been, he can deal with it. He can take care of it. He can change you. You do not have to die in sin. You do not have to continue to reside in the kingdom of darkness. 
And if that's what you choose, and I understand, I get the free will, I get the choosing thing, I just simply preach it all, all of Scripture. But if this is what you choose, it will be your fault. You will be destroyed with the evil age. You will be cast into the lake of fire, as we've been talking about, and you will be the only one to blame. And it's worse for you because you've heard the gospel. Jesus said it would be better this day and age for Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what was going on there. It'd be better for Sodom and Gomorrah that did not hear the gospel or really probably did in a way through Lot, but it certainly did not see Christ walking down the streets and performing miracles. It didn't see the manifestation of God's presence and power, but Bethsaida did and Capernaum did, and Jesus said it would be better on the day of the Lord for Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what that means. That's a perverted, disgusting place. It's Las Vegas. It's better for them than it would be for the places that heard the gospel and saw Christ manifest the power of God. Those who hear the gospel and reject it are judged more sternly than those who never hear it. Look, he can make you righteous. He can put you in his kingdom. He can. Fall prostrate, fall down, bow down before the throne of grace and ask the Lord for mercy. Repent and trust in Christ now and be saved. This is the message to the Corinthians and to us here in this text. May we... Remember who we were, unrighteous with many vices outside the kingdom of God in the domain of darkness under the power of Satan. That's who we were. May we remember who we are in Christ. If we are Christians, if we've repented and trusted him, may we remember who we are, washed, sanctified, justified, righteous, inhabitants and inheritors of the kingdom of God. Glory to God and called and empowered by the Spirit to walk in righteousness, not perfectly, but patterned. Patterned. It will be there. You will see it. And you will hate it when you fall short. Just as I have been hating myself lately, because I have been falling short. Remember what it means to have pattern righteousness, a desire for righteousness, doing righteousness, and contrition and brokenness when you don't live righteously. That's the pattern. Is that you? Rejoice. If not, repent and trust in Christ.